Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, as well as Acts, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, and the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. In the continuation of our study on biblical discernment in worship, tonight I want us to examine from Scripture a widely accepted practice among churches that is often employed in the worship of God that has caused a great deal of spiritual damage to the cause of Christ over the years. And the practice I am referring to is that which is commonly called the sinner's prayer. And before we look at this practice in the light of God's Word, I want us to examine once again that it ought to be the supreme desire of the individual Christian and the collective church to examine all things by the teaching of God's Word. In fact, this is precisely what the Apostle Paul commands the believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 to do. He commands them to prove or test not some things, not most things, not the things we don't do, not the things that we have traditionally done, but all things. And this is what it means to be a Berean believer. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not what they were hearing was so. The Bereans were people who listened to the teachings of the apostles intently and prudently believed and put into practice only that which was in accordance to God's will revealed in Scripture. And this teaches us then that testing the teachings of various leaders is not something that is disgraceful. It is something that is praiseworthy by God. If we are going to be true Bible-believing, Bible-practicing Christian people, then we must allow God's Word to be the final authority for faith and practice. And I know we live in a day where every so-called Christian gives lip service to being Bible-believing. Every so-called Christian gives lip service to the Bible being the final authority of what they believe and what they do. But I'm asserting that we as a church must sincerely strive to allow God's Word to guide our thinking in every aspect of life. We must, we must, we must examine all things by the Bible. We must examine all teachings, all teachers, 
all practices, all traditions, all denominational preferences by the truths of God's Word. And in our examination of these things, we must ask the hard questions. We must ask, is this biblical? Is it according to God's will? Is it honoring to God? Is it spiritually helpful to others? Is it excellent? Remember Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. Is it the best way to do things? Is it wise? As we examine all things, we must ask, is it suitable to the nature of God and is it suitable to the message of the gospel? And if it is, then we cleave to it, we hold fast to it without apology. But if it is not, then we ought to disregard it at once. So that being said, in the time that we have together this evening, I want us to hold what is commonly called the sinner's prayer up to the light of God's word to see whether or not such a teaching and practice is in agreement with God's will. And in this, I hope that we will examine whether or not this has been given to us either by God or by men. John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, question for you. Where in this powerful text on salvation do we find Jesus mentioning anything about praying a specific prayer to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Where in the text do we find any encouragement for Nicodemus to do something to obtain eternal life? I'll give you a hint. It's not there. In fact, what we find in this text is Jesus assuring Nicodemus that he can do nothing to obtain eternal life. In this text, we find Jesus asserting that if Nicodemus 
is to see the kingdom of heaven, God must work a sovereign miracle in his heart. Jesus is telling this moral, religious, prayerful, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching man that he is completely unable to make himself right with God. Notice it. Jesus says, except or unless a man be born again, meaning born from above, born from God, miraculously translated from darkness to light, except or unless a man be converted, except a man be regenerated, except a man be given a new heart, notice it, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus did not say, Nicodemus, you need to pray more. Nicodemus, you need to go to church. You need to read your Bible if you are to become a Christian. Jesus did not say, Nicodemus, you need to do more kind acts for others. Jesus said, Nicodemus, the only way for you to be a Christian is by recognizing that you lack all ability to save yourself. But God in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that which you cannot do if you believe. And the declaration of faith is given to us in verse 15, Verse 16, verse 18, verse 36. Nicodemus has to believe that he can't and that Christ can if he is to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you will, turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I wish I had time to read the whole narrative, but for sake of time, I won't. Most of you know the biblical account of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 describes the time in which the day of Pentecost was fully come. Acts chapter 2 is the biblical text that details what took place when the church was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on those who were gathered. We read that in verse 1. Continuing on, the multitude who came to Jerusalem heard every man speak in his own language. They all began to marvel at what was taking place. And Peter stands up, lifts up his voice and preaches. And in his preaching, we find that he not only tells those under the sound of his voice, that what was taking place was the fulfillment of prophecy. We find beginning in verse 22 that Peter is moved of God to preach truth regarding who Christ is and why Jesus Christ was crucified. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, 
having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto the people and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice what is said in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, every head bowed, Every eye closed. If the Lord has worked in your heart, please raise your hand. If you've raised your hand, please come forward. Look at the text. If you've come forward, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want you to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Do you see it? This is the evangelistic method Peter used. Look at it. Then Peter said, if you were sincere and you prayed the prayer, congratulations, you're a part of the family of God. You are unquestionably a Christian. And if you ever question whether or not you're a true believer, here's a decision card that will prove that you are truly in Christ. Any doubts or fears that you have the rest of your life regarding the sincerity of your faith can be suppressed by this signed card that proves that you are a true believer. So keep it in your Bible so that you will know that you're always saved. Is that what we read? What do you mean? Do I have a corrupt version of the Bible or something? 
Maybe I've missed something. I mean, surely, surely Peter did not forget what he learned in personal evangelism class. Surely Peter did not spoil the moment when 3,000 people were listening to his sermon. What did Peter say? Look, the people are asking, what shall we do? They're prime for the picking, as we say. Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as our Lord, our God, shall call. And with many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And notice carefully here that this was not a rushed, let's get this over so we can go home kind of deal. Look at it. The Bible says, with many other words, Peter did testify and exhort. And let me remind you that Peter liked to talk. He was a true Baptist preacher. Verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Notice here the emphasis of gladly receiving rather than uncertainly, timidly, rapidly receiving. And the text goes on and says, In the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly. In the apostles' doctrine, they did not fade away the next week. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and good and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily, there it is again, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat and with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Who added to his church? The Lord. Not Peter. 3,000 souls saved. No sinner's prayer used. No altar call given. No playing on the emotions of men with music. No man-made tactic. The Spirit fell. Peter preached. God opened the hearts of men. And those who believed continued in the faith. That's Bible. That's the work of God. Acts chapter 2 records one of the greatest revivals a church has ever seen. So with these two texts as our foundation, in our assessment of the evangelistic practice of using what is commonly called the sinner's prayer, I want to give you seven general problems with using it. 
And point number one should be obvious to us all, which is the fact that it is not a biblical method used in Scripture. The sinner's prayer is not a method used in Scripture. There is not even the slightest hint of anyone in Scripture doing what is commonly done today to, quote, secure decisions for Christ. Nowhere in the ministry of the prophets, nowhere in the ministry of Jesus, nowhere in the ministry of the apostles do we find the evangelistic techniques that are widely accepted and practiced today. Nowhere, not even remotely close. Oh, but I hear somebody kicking against it. Oh, but pastor, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Yes, but where do we find somebody leading somebody else in a prayer? Where do we find the bowing of heads, the closing of eyes, the squeezing of hands, and lip confession alone being the determining factor of salvation? The answer is we don't find it anywhere. What we do find, however, is Jesus calling on men to repent. We find Jesus saying, Not everybody who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. In our Bibles, we read of John the Baptist calling on men to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. We find the Apostle Paul teaching us that godly sorrow worketh to salvation. It worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, while the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, I could stand up here all night and give you Bible references, but what I'm trying to prove from Scripture is that the sinner's prayer is not biblical. It's extra-biblical. It's been forced upon Scripture, not derived from Scripture, which means then that it is a man-made tradition rather than a God-ordained practice. And I'm persuaded that this truth alone should cause us to refrain from using it, and it should encourage us to call it out for what it is. It is a practice that has been invented and taught by men, not a practice that has been conceived and encouraged for us to use by God. This is truth number one. The sinner's prayer, as it is commonly called, is not a truth taught or used in Scripture. Truth number two. The second general problem with Christians and churches using the sinner's prayer in evangelism is that it makes man the author of salvation. Listen, when we tell someone to do something, rather than believe on Christ for salvation, we are distorting the message of the gospel. When we assure others that their coming forward and their praying a prayer is what is needed to be right with God, we are preaching a message of works, or at least a message of faith and works. Even if we know and admit that walking an aisle and praying a prayer does not say, when we employ such methods, we are directly or indirectly, knowingly or unknowingly encouraging lost people to be the author of their faith. 
What we are saying by our actions is you can make yourself right with God. If you just jump through these religious hoops, you can be saved. If you raise your hand, if you step out of the pew, if you repeat a prayer, if you are sincere, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you see where the focus is? The focus is on man, not Christ. That is not the message of the true gospel. It's not the message preserved for us in Scripture. That's a sham gospel invented by men. The message of the gospel according to Scripture is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. Faith to believe. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 through 7, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. The message of salvation involves God drawing, God convicting, God awakening, God converting, God humbling, godly sorrow leading to repentance and God causing there to be a lasting love for Jesus Christ. Notice the difference between the two Gospels. Jesus says, if you are to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The man-made Gospel says, if you are to see the kingdom of God, you must pray a specific prayer. Peter says, you must repent. You must be called by the Lord you must gladly receive his word. The man-made gospel says, you must repeat after me. The Bible says, it's through Christ and his sovereign power alone that saves. The teaching today is, you have the power to save yourself whenever you want. Why do I have a problem with the sinner's prayer? Why do I believe you should have a problem with the sinner's prayer? First, because it's not biblical. Second, because it makes man the author of salvation. Third, because it brings a great deal of deception among the church. Listen, the sinner's prayer deceives. First, it encourages deception on the part of the one encouraging others to pray the prayer. When a pastor or a personal worker believes that the guaranteed confirmation of someone's salvation is in a prayer that they prayed one time in their life, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but they are living in an unbiblical fairy tale. They are deceived. When a pastor or personal worker gives priestly assurance to someone who prayed a prayer, whether they recognize it or not, they are acting in the place of God. Giving assurance to others is not our work. It's to be the work of God. And likewise, when the one praying the prayer believes that they are in a right relationship with God because they repeated some magical words that are not in the Bible, it's easy for them to become deceived. You see how serious this is. 
I'm convinced that the sinner's prayer has deceived more people than it has helped. I'm convinced that the sinner's prayer has led more people to hell rather than heaven. I've met thousands of people whose lives are marked by continual rebellion to God, who truly believe that they are Christian because they went to church when they were little and they prayed the prayer. I wish I had the ability to take all of you to the rescue mission. I wish I had the ability to take all of you to the local jail. There are countless murderers, thieves, drunkards, fornicators, adulterers, pimps, and prostitutes who will look you in the eye and say, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I'm going to heaven because one time I did what the preacher wanted me to do. The sinner's prayer often deceives people into thinking that they really got saved when they didn't. And sadly, this leads to making it more difficult to reach such people for Christ. There's no one more difficult to evangelize than a lost Pharisee who thinks they've been born again when the fruit of their life clearly demonstrates that they are still Satan's slave. The sinner's prayer is spiritual poison. Number one, because it's unbiblical. Number two, because it makes man the author of salvation. Number three, it deceives. Number four, it fills the church with lost people. And when you fill the church with lost people, you cease to have a church. Because a church, by its biblical definition, is a called out assembly of baptized believers. Now we are back to the point that I've just mentioned. When you rush people into making a quick decision and you call it salvation, you are deceiving people into thinking that those added to the church through unbiblical methods are indisputably true believers. And this leads then to the common thinking among most churches that someone must automatically be a Christian because they come to church every week and they are an official church member. Listen, this is what we've been discussing in our Sunday school hour. When you water down the truth of the gospel, it always leads to an impure church. When the gospel goes, everything else will go. If the gospel is not preached correctly, if it's not embraced joyfully, when one's evangelistic efforts are man-centered rather than God-centered, mark my words, it will always lead to an unregenerate membership. And when you have unregenerate membership, you will have people wanting fun church as opposed to doctrinal teaching and reverent worship. These things all tie together. When you have unregenerate membership, you will have people wanting coffee and donuts above true Christian fellowship because those among the church are not true Christians. And true Christian fellowship makes them uncomfortable. And when you have a church that is filled with unbelievers, you will inevitably have people who joyfully come to the potlucks over and above the prayer meetings and the preaching services. You will have churches splitting over the color of the carpet in the church business meetings. You will have deacons wanting the pastor voted out because he preaches the gospel too much. And sadly, this is the state of many churches today in our country. You have people who go to church out of tradition or because they're pressed to go to church by others. 
You have people who are kind and cordial, who claim to know the Lord. They sing the songs. They nod their head at the preaching. But their hearts do not have a passionate desire to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So I'm asserting that much of what we are seeing in Christianity today is the result of our own absurdity. We have sown unbiblical methods of evangelism, so now we are reaping what we have sown. Millions have made, quote, decisions for Christ among our churches over the years, and those millions want nothing to do with God today. And this is precisely how the devil wants it to be. The devil would love nothing more than to fill Christ's church with goats who think themselves to be sheep. The sinner's prayer fills churches with lost people. Point number five. The sinner's prayer encourages a false measure of success. Among many denominational circles and in many churches, there's a belief that one's success in the work of the Lord is dependent upon how many people, quote, got saved by praying a prayer. I can tell you of many examples of zealous pastors, zealous missionaries, zealous evangelists, so-called soul winners in churches who equate their success in ministry with how many people pray a prayer. The name of the game goes something like this. How many people did you lead to the Lord last month? Well, I led. And with such thinking, there is this very unbiblical idea that one is a failure if one doesn't, quote, seal the deal in evangelism. If a pastor faithfully preaches the gospel, but he doesn't get decision cards signed, if a missionary sends a prayer letter but doesn't boast about how many people he's led to the Lord, then he's viewed as a failure. It's true. Don't forget, I rub shoulders with pastors who like to talk. It's true. And the same is true with summer youth camps, which, by the way, is part of the reason why I don't send my kids to camp. With most youth camps, there is a pushing for numbers. There is a desire to see how many decisions can be boasted of in the after-summer assessment. I remember a camp counselor complaining at a teen camp that the pastor who preached to the teens did a phenomenal job expositing the truths of God's Word But of all things, he failed to encourage the kids to pray a prayer. He did not invite the kids to make bodily movement afterward. So this counselor thought the guest preacher who was faithful to the word was a failure because he didn't get young people to perform a specific action. Where in the Bible is this thinking. Where in the Bible do we see God measuring success by numbers, by decisions? Where in the Bible do we see God teaching us that numbers equals God's blessing? 
I guess Noah was a failure. He was a preacher of righteousness. Only eight were saved. I guess the prophets were utter disappointments to God. They, Israel turned their ear from their message. I guess Jesus, God in the flesh, didn't do ministry right. I mean, it seems that Jesus turned away more people than people followed Him. I guess William Carey, missionary to India, who went seven years without a convert, didn't know his Bible. You see, what's wrong with us? Seriously, are we so blind? Are we so wrapped up in our man-made traditions like the Pharisees that we've made the truth of God of none effect on our hearts? Where did we come to believe that salvation decisions equals success? I will tell you, it came when we quit believing the sufficiency and authority of God's Word. It came when we believed that salvation is something man can manufacture by his own sales pitch. Listen to what the Bible says. Paul says, Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. The sinner's prayer encourages a false measure of success. That's poison number five. Poison number six. The sinner's prayer encourages pride. This attitude of, look how many people I've led to the Lord. Look at what a faithful soul winner I am. Is nothing but pride. The boasting of numbers in prayer letters. The boasting of people praying prayers and walking the aisle on Twitter and Facebook. Is absolutely absurd. It is nauseating to God. I've seen it for years among my Baptist brethren. We're so used to it. The arrogant boasting that everyone accepts it as normal. Well, I've knocked this many doors. I've handed out this many tracts. We as a church saw this many people come to faith in Christ. Every Sunday, I see big name pastors praising God after their morning service for how many decisions they had. Every week, there are pictures that pastors post online of how many people came to the altar, which is really not an altar, after a sermon. Why is a pastor taking pictures of people bowing after his message? You see, it's all about me, me, me. Look at us, us, us. Like us. Retweet us. Tell us how great we are. We say, we say, make no mistake, it's all about Jesus. But in reality, it's all about we, 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 I, 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 numbers, 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 decisions, decisions, decisions. Do you know what I'm tempted to type when I see these things posted online? Every week, pastors boasting. Here's what I want to tweet. I want to say, take heed that you do not your evangelism before men. To be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. This is what I want to say. 
How about this? When thou preachest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to post of their numbers on social media that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Let's remember what the Lord said about pride from this morning's text. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I'm convinced one of the main reasons we are not seeing God's true blessing in churches is due to the fact that we are so proud. We know how to do church. We know how to evangelize. We don't need the Spirit's help. We don't need to wait on God to do His perfect converting work. We are trained religious salesmen. We know how to work people's emotions. Just keep playing just as I am a hundred times till people start coming. So God says, if you think you know better than I do, then you can eat the fruit of your own ways. And that's exactly why churches are so weak and so empty of true spiritual power. This is not a trivial issue. Do you want God to resist us? Do we want God to place himself in battle array against us? How will we ever expect to know God's blessings if we don't obey his word and follow his ways? We're so arrogant. The sinner's prayer often encourages pride. And finally, point number seven. The sinner's prayer discourages true believers who know their Bibles, especially in those churches where such a practice is used. It discourages the true believers. And it not only discourages true believers because it is unbiblical, it discourages true believers because the church has created a revolving door where people decide for Christ and then turn back to their sin. Hundreds and thousands of young people come into the Christian school. They come into the children's programs. They come into the youth groups for a time and then they are gone back into the world. Hundreds and even thousands of adults come to church, sing the songs, pray a prayer, get baptized and never come back. The numbers are exciting at first. We often say, praise God. But then it leads to discouragement over time. Now, I can't speak for you, but I get discouraged thinking about the fact that there are a large number of young people my age who've grown up in church who want absolutely nothing to do with Christ today. They went to youth camp every summer but you could not tell any difference between them and a reprobate. That's sad. And it's sad because it's largely our fault. It's our fault because we did not take the time to examine what we were doing biblically. Our zeal overcame our knowledge of truth. We are to blame for leading many astray. 
What are the biblical problems with the sinner's prayer? Number one, it's unbiblical. Number two, it makes man the author of salvation. Number three, it deceives. Number four, it fills the church with lost people. Number five, it encourages a false measure of success. Number six, it encourages pride. Number seven, it discourages true believers. Now, before I conclude, very quickly, let me make sure that we understand several important truths that deal with this topic. I've come at this rather strongly, and I make no apology for it, but I do want to conclude by encouraging you with two final truths. All right? Truth number one. Hear this truth. Not everyone who employs such methods is intentionally manipulative. You need to know this. Not everybody who employs these methods are intentionally manipulative. Some of us who have used this method of evangelism can identify with this. Some of us have quickly led others in a prayer. Some of us were taught a specific way of witnessing when we first came to Christ. When we came to Christ, we were immediately exposed to the methods that were being used in the church. We were taught that this was the right way of doing it. We trusted our pastors. So by way of application, let me encourage you with the truth that if you are beating yourself up because you've led people to the Lord, at least you've thought you've led people to the Lord, when they probably did not come to the Lord, all hope is not lost. God is merciful, and God in His sovereignty can take that which is crooked and make it straight. And I'm an example of this. I prayed a sinner's prayer in a junior church setting in church. The question is asked to all kids, how many of you kids would like to go to heaven? But what kid wants to go to hell? How many of kids want to go to heaven? All right, if you want to go to heaven, come forward. We can talk to you in a side room. Five minutes later, do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Okay, pray the prayer. I prayed the prayer. I got an ice cream cone. My dad was happy that I did it. He couldn't see my heart, but he was glad that I made a decision. But I lived a lie for 10 years. It wasn't true salvation. I still love the world and the things of this world. But in God's grace, at the age of 16, I was truly converted. I was truly broken before God. I was truly brought to a place of repentance and faith. And I can look back now and see that that was the new birth. So I say all that to say one salvation is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God. And then connected with this truth, it's important to remember as we look out and see what is taking place around us that not everyone who employs such methods is striving to be intentionally manipulative. This doesn't mean that we should not challenge their thinking about biblical truth, but it does mean that we need to be patient and gracious with those who may still be growing in their understanding of Scripture. Let's make sure that we also understand 
Truth number two, that there are people who have been genuinely converted through unbiblical methods of evangelism. I'm striving to be balanced and honest here. There are people who have been genuinely converted through unbiblical methods of evangelism. You say, how does that work? It works because God is sovereign, God is gracious, and God is good. God saves not because of man, but in spite of man. Remember, God can save whoever He wants, whenever He wants, through whatever circumstances He wants. He's God. The wind, the Spirit blows wherever it desires. So there are many people who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a decision card, who've truly come to faith in Christ. Now make no mistake, it wasn't their bodily movement or words that saved them. It was Christ that saved them. Now this doesn't give us liberty to use such means, but this does mean that God is so gracious that He accomplishes His will despite our methods. And then the finally, finally, let me give a call to examine and believe tonight. For the unbeliever who may be under my voice, if you are here tonight still without God, still without hope, still without Christ, if you are here tonight and you've been living a lie, you've been thinking yourself to be a Christian because you did something for God, but the reality is you've never been born again by the Spirit your life has not been changed. I urge you, through the authority of Scripture, to seek the Lord while He may be found. I urge you tonight to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to cry out in desperation, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we could give any sinner's prayer, that's the sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not the words, it's the cry, it's the desperation of the heart. It's the coming before the Holy One and recognizing that you are altogether sinful. You deserve to be judged for your wickedness. But God in His grace sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. Are there any religious hypocrites here tonight? coddling themselves that they were saved when the years show that there was no change. There was no love for Christ that followed. There was no obedience. Oh, may you come to Christ now. May God deal with your heart. And then for the believer, let me give to the believer here tonight a call to be biblical. As we've discussed this topic that is widely accepted, it's widely practiced among Christianity, I want to encourage you to allow God's Word to transform your beliefs and your practices. My final cry to believers tonight, to the church at large, is in all things, let's let God be true. Let's let every man be a liar. God's always true and always right. His ways are perfect.